Hello and welcome to Underscore, the podcast from Asa Allen, featuring leading experts in economics and public policy. I'm your host and the CEO of Asa Allen, Paul Hislop. We're joined here today by my colleagues Alex Gash and Jerome Ferrer. Alex is Executive Director for the ACT for Asa Allen, and Jerome is a Director in Asa Allen's Victorian office. Alex and Jerome recently penned an insight piece on the need for a national tax reform roadmap. Alex, Jerome, how are you both? Very well, thanks, Paul. Good, Paul. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you joining the conversation here today. Your article is, uh, your article is quite an interesting uh, piece, and I thought we maybe could start. You talk in your article about the four pillars of tax reform. What are they? Why do they need reframing? Okay, so the four pillars of tax reform are Commonwealth government taxes, state government taxes, financial relations between the Commonwealth and the, and the states, which are characterised by what we call vertical fiscal imbalance, which is to say that the Commonwealth can and does raise much more in taxes from the states and so has to give money to the states so that they can provide services. And finally, we have something called horizontal fiscalisation, which is the process by which money is distributed among the states so that they have an equal capacity to deliver services. All four need to be reformed all at the same time because they all interact with each other. And the reason we need any reform at all is because our national tax system is no longer fit for purpose. It doesn't raise the right kind of taxes. It doesn't, it creates all sorts of costs when it does try to raise taxes. And there are coming ahead of us in the next few decades, very large amounts of spending that governments have said that they are going to undertake. So the money has to be raised. So are you, are you saying that one of the issues is that we need to raise more money and taxes need to be higher? If we're going to spend uh, the money the government say they're going to spend on NDIS, on health, on submarines, on the energy transition and so on, then the money has to be raised. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily raising tax rates. It, it could mean having a more efficient tax system, which will contribute to a faster growing economy, which will itself uh, lead to more revenue for governments. Yeah, I mean, one of the criticisms people often make about, um, I, I know a lot of people argue for more efficient tax systems, and I, um, you know, I, I can see the benefit of reducing the, the burden of, administrative burden on the economy. Uh, one of the issues with more efficient taxes is whether or not governments actually raise more money and spend more money on things that are themselves not not efficient. You know, well, that may well be so. <laughs> That's a different question. There are two questions, uh, two big meta questions around tax. And one, one is how big should be the state, the size of government? So how big should be the overall tax system? Mm. The second is given that whatever that happens to be, what's the most efficient way to raise a given amount of revenue? And that's what, we're con what we've written about in our piece. You, you, you mentioned um, vertical fiscal imbalance. And um, I think one of the things that, uh, that took two aspects of our tax system, one is, is the imbalance between the taxes that are raised at both the state and Commonwealth level and the obligations of the state and Commonwealth uh, to then service the community. And the other side is uh, what often people refer to as horizontal fiscal Im uh, imbalance where different states um, have different le levels of 
of capacity to service the population, and so we actually transfer uh, money between states. Going to the fiscal, vertical fiscal imbalance first, why not just fix that by the Commonwealth taking on more obligations? What about the states just hand back some some of the obligations to the Commonwealth? Why, why do the states have those obligations? Well, in principle, it's better that services be provided by the level of government that's closest to people, and that's and that's the states. Now, the Commonwealth actually doesn't do anything in terms of service delivery apart from defence and security. And I don't think most people wouldn't want the Commonwealth or would doubt whether the Commonwealth would be able to deliver health services on the ground, run schools and so on. Now, of course, there are some countries that aren't federations, that don't have states, and where the national government does exactly this. Uh, but that's not what we have. I mean, we have a very large country in terms of geography. Um, historically, um, the reason we have states is because we had colonies which federated in 1901. And so um, that's, the, that's what we've got, and that's not going to change. Common, the Commonwealth is good for certain things. The states should be better at, at delivering services. And indeed, just following on from Jerome's comments, indeed the debates about vertical fiscal imbalance go right back to the debates of the federal convention. So while the colonies were discussing um, the design of the federation and the design of the potential constitution, was a significant amount of debate about what the split between Commonwealth and state taxes should be. And indeed, um, for the first 15 years of the uh, Federation, there was a, a, a unique clause in the Constitution called the Braddon Clause, which required the Commonwealth to actually return 70, at least 75% of the taxes collected under the new Federation back to the states to indeed... Um, ensure that states had the capacity to continue to deliver those services. So the, I think the intended design of the Commonwealth and the intended design of a federal tax system was always to empower the states to have taxing powers. Now, that's been eroded over time as uh, the High Court has become much more interventionist in, the, um, in, in some key decisions and determinations around um, state taxation powers and, indeed, the the income taxation powers um, during the Second World War were given to the Commonwealth, um, and that's been reinforced by the High Court over time. But um, I think to come back to Jerome's point, one of the, the principal design elements of Australia's tax system from the get-go was to actually to give the state some meaningful taxation powers. It doesn't look like over the last 100 or so years that that design principle has is held up as intended. Yeah, there's not a lot of, I mean, there's not a lot, lot of uh, equivalent federations around the world, but um, if you look at federations, I mean, there is a, a general tendency, I think, uh, to move from decentralised to centralised power. And in fact, if you look at uh, the American system, I mean, it, it sort of began uh, from the very beginning of the federation with the Federalist Papers and Madison and so on. So, so isn't there a sense then that that's what's going to happen anyway? Uh, I mean, if you've got, if you're the guy that's got the armies, and you know, you're the guy that does the dealing with the international countries and those sorts of things, um, aren't you ultimately in a position you're going to gradually centralise the power anyway? Maybe we should just accept that. And should we be actually looking at a change to the 
the way we govern ourselves rather than the tax system? I think that's an interesting question, Paul. It raises a, a set of big questions about the the overarching responsibilities of jurisdictions within a federation and what the appropriate balance between roles and responsibilities are. I'd come back to the actual design intent of the Constitution. The design intent of the Constitution wasn't to actually centralise power. It was to provide better coordination between the colonies and to provide an overarching governance arrangement so the colonies can be both economically productive as well as have um, trade opportunities between the colonies as they became states, as well as um, some overarching defence capabilities. So that, there were some of the big debates about the Constitution during the debates of the Federal Convention. So, look, I think it also comes back, to answer your question, um, it also comes back to Jerome's early points about efficiency. So as the Commonwealth taxing powers have centralised, or as the Australia's taxing roles and responsibilities are somewhat centralised over time, um, there might be an argument there that it's now inefficient because the level of government that's actually delivering the services and collecting the taxation. So there's a disjuncture between the taxation collection function as well as the, the policy or the, pro the program delivery function. And that in itself is an argument about inefficiency. So that's one of the things that underpins our paper. Yeah, and it's not directly in your paper, but I mean, it's sort of going to that. The Commonwealth raising most of the money, they then do seem to duplicate some of the things the states do, although, as Jerome points out, don't actually deliver services. And uh, a classic example that's often, well, two, two, two examples that are often sort of cited are the um, Federal Department of Health and the Federal Department of Education, which, which appear to duplicate a lot of state functions, but they don't run schools and I think they don't run many hospitals, if any at all. No, they don't. And or, there's, a certain, there's always going to be a certain tendency for the level of government that has the money to... Uh, dictate to the level of government that doesn't. And yes, the Federal Education Department does a lot of stuff and the Federal Health Department does a lot of stuff. I mean, they they run uh, Medicare, for example, the insurance aspect of, uh, of the health system and, and, and many other things as well. Um, they purchased the vaccines during the pandemic. Um, now, you know, could they be smaller? I don't know. I mean, you need to go through the item by item, maybe. Um, to get back to your earlier point, Paul, our, our constitution if, is designed, I mean, the purpose of it, to divide power and responsibility between the states and to, to get to an all-Commonwealth, to get to the situation where the Commonwealth does everything. We would need radical changes to the constitution. And as we saw a few weeks ago with um, the voice referendum, it's very difficult to make changes to the constitution. And the only, I mean, the only, the only changes that can be made piece by piece are those uh, ha happens when the high court interprets different par parts of the constitution uh, somewhat differently from the way it was interpreted, uh, the way they were interpreted before. So we're stuck with the system that we have and uh, question that is how do we make the best of it? Yeah, no, I think, uh, look, I, I, I get that and um, I, I wasn't seriously suggesting that it would move to a single unitary form of government. But it, but it does raise the issue. I mean, Alex made the point that the High Court's gradually taken away a number of state-based taxing powers. I mean, uh, they handed across income tax and then I think later the High Court basically 
gave uh, preeminence to the Commonwealth and income tax. And then more recently, there's the loss of, um, there's the excise decision where states were basically unable to charge excise. So the states losing revenue, some of the some of the revenues that got left, we would describe as very inefficient taxes. And in your article, you talk about stamp duty, for example. That's one of the big state revenue raises in recent years. If the tax reform requires the state's buy-in, how does the Commonwealth go about getting this? Because I assume this, the Commonwealth would have to drive this. How would the Commonwealth go about getting the states to buy in to this this form of tax reform when, in fact, it might further threaten uh, their ability to raise taxes? But it Well, one way is just to bribe the states with money. That, that often works. So, uh, there's nothing to stop the Commonwealth handing back at least some of the income tax to the states. They could do it. And I think uh, Malcolm Fraser, when he was Prime Minister, floated the idea briefly. Uh, it didn't get him anywhere, but it, but it was an idea that was that, that, that he had. And there are, other, there are ways the Commonwealth could make up the money that it gives to the states by giving them some of the income tax through its own through further reforms of the income tax system, such as through various deductions and, uh, and special deals that are riven through the tax system, and of course, if the Commonwealth gave the states more of their more of their own revenue, then there would be less of a need for the Commonwealth to finance the states directly, which which it does on a very large scale. So it can all be made to balance, but it requires a lot of effort and a lot of political will to change things, because as soon as you start changing the tax system, some people are going to be upset, and and they're the ones who are generally the loudest and who have um, the biggest influence. The states themselves could do things. New South Wales made a semi-effort to reform from stamp duties to land taxes, but that's uh, gone nowhere, as it turns out. But, they, but the states could do that. Now, they're very reluctant to do that and uh, because it would mean getting less money now and more money later, but they need the money now. So there's there's an immediate problem there, but it could be done. They could reform uh, their payroll taxes, which is, payroll tax is potentially a, a very efficient tax, but the states have turned it into an inefficient tax by all manner of exemptions for small businesses and so on because the politics of getting... Uh, concessions to small business is very attractive, and that's what's dominated policy making in that area. And there's other things that the states could do. They could have congestion charges and so on. Uh, but of course, that's a new tax, and the new taxes are unpopular taxes. Now, that none of this necessarily means more taxes overall, but it does mean some people paying more and other people paying less, and that that creates a political problem for government. And the, uh, I mean, the, just on the congestion charges, I, it wasn't really a congestion charge, but the High, high Court, I think, has just turned down a Victorian uh, tax on um, electric vehicles, um, which is sort of designed sort of around uh, the idea of at least collecting revenue with the loss of um, of, of uh, taxes through um, sale of petrol, excise on petrol. Yes, it has. And that, that was potentially a good tax, that, but has now completely gone because the High Court has decided that any any tax on consumption of any good is an excise tax and can't be done 
according to Section 90 of the Constitution. Now that's and and, and it and indeed it overturned previous its own previous some of its own previous decisions in coming in coming to that view. So that's you know yet yet more and that has implications for possible implications for other taxes that the states currently raise. Now that's somewhat speculative. That's what legal commentators have said. Who knows whether it'll come to that? But it's just yet ever more, even more chipping away at the state's ability to to raise their own revenue. And yet, when there are when schools buildings start falling down, and when when there are hospital waiting lists, it's the state governments who bear the responsibility for all. I think this also raises the, just the broader question about how tricky politically some tax reform is. Um, how it would prove with the introduction of the GST you can actually break through and deliver significant taxation reform at a national level, um, but it takes at least two political cycles to get there. So the first cycle, you have to set up the arguments, the debate, you have to uh, win the public debate around the pros and cons of moving to a new or a better tax set of tax arrangements. And then you have to have the political will and some some petrol in the, in the, in the political tank to actually deliver it because you need to go into an, a, a second election on the basis of tax reform. So look, you need to come from a pretty reasonably strong base to be able to initiate significant tax reform. The second thing is, is tax reform is politically tricky because it is a very institutionally fragmented landscape. So if you think of within one level of government, you've got multiple treasuries and agencies and tax officers involved, and you've got different stakeholders involved. Uh, and then you amplify that across the jurisdictions. Um, you have a, quite a, a fragmented and a complex institutional landscape, which needs to be, I think, needs to be thought about. It needs to be um, looked at and needs to be unpicked and then you need to actually develop a very uh, clearly articulated roadmap and this is what we talk about in our insight article to I think put on paper uh, the, the, a core rationale or a clear rationale for delivering tax reform on what it actually looks like before people would, would buy into it through the political process. Yeah, I think that's what we nowadays often call the narrative Alex, you know, the, create the narrative before you pursue it. And look, I think it's really important. And if you go back to, as you mentioned, you talk about um, the Howard government. And if you go back even to the, further to the Hawke and Keating government, I mean, they were very good at creating the narratives around uh, why we had to do things. And you think about the reforms that uh, the Hawke Keating government achieved. You know, there's no way you could could do most of those things today in the current current political environment. One of the uh, things that often comes up in the tax debate is is the, the level of tax and the overall tax take. Um, and we've seen this in America where they have these ongoing sort of games they play every six or 12 months where they've reached the, the debt ceiling and they have to go and get approval for to raise more debt and so on. Is there a, uh, is there a benefit in actually putting an upper limit on the amount of tax that the government can, can take or, or is that something that's actually a dangerous thing? Well, you could. The problem is there's no upper limit on what the community expects from government in terms of services. So as long as it's consistent, it's okay. But the community wants a high level of services and they don't want to pay for it, and, and that creates the fundamental problem. Apart from what the community wants, I mean, there are things that the government has decided we need. So the 
very expensive ALCAS sub-program. Now, I'm not a defence expert. I don't know whether spending all this money on, on these submarines is a good idea or not, or whether getting them or not, but the government and its advisors have, just, have decided that they are necessary and they cost we, a lot of money. We did uh, put a bit of a view forward on that a couple of years ago with David Campbell, actually, uh, if, if people want to go back and look at the podcast. <laughs> and then... The energy transition is another one. I mean, people, generally speaking, I think public opinion wants, you know, is supportive of the, the net zero concept. Okay, well, that's all good, but uh, the amount of money that needs to be spent and largely by governments to get there is is enormous. So uh, if you put an upper limit on the amount of taxes that can be raised, you're not going to be able to spend the money on the things that the community wants or and or needs. Just following on from that comment, um, I could not see either major party putting a constraint on their 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 optionality or their option value to do do different things with the tax system over time. So while they have that approach in uh, the US, I can't see the party signing into that because I think it just reduces the options they have to raise taxes at any point in time or to um, raise spending at any point in time. So I can't see that being politically feasible in Australia. Yeah. And, and one and, would argue when the debt ceiling was put in place in the US, it was a fairly political thing anyway, yeah, <laughs> designed to basically right. hamper yeah. the other side of government. Yeah. We have a debt ceiling here too, actually, and every so often the parliament has to raise, has to pass the legislation to raise it, but it's not contentious ever, uh, not like it is in America. Well, that's just consistent with the idea that the government has to pass legislation to to both yeah. uh, raise raise money and spend money. Yes, and uh, so so when it comes to um, the discussion of rationalising taxes, and I think you do talk about income tax and the marginal rates and the the, the excess burden that it places on the economy. We know if we look at our tax system, I mean, particularly the difference between corporate rates and high personal rates is, is an issue. But whenever we have that discussion, it comes down to oh, rich people are going to get all the tax. Tax, tax deductions and it's all unfair and so on. How can we go through a tax reform process and avoid avoid degenerating to that kind of debate? Because obviously more wealthier people pay more taxes, so when you cut tax rates, they're going to get bigger tax cuts. But if, that's a, if having high marginal rates is a problem, we're going to have to go down that path. So how do we get through that without it degenerating into what's often quite a silly debate? Well... That's part of the problem, and we're seeing it now with the uh, debate over the stage three tax cuts. The reason they're the stage three is that there was a stage, there were stages one and two where people on, on lower incomes got, got tax cuts. But, but um, it is difficult, and, it, and it's a sign of the immaturity of, of our public discourse on, on these matters. It's quite easy to, to generate. This sort of populist resentment. There, there needs to be, as Alex said, uh, people need to be convinced that there's something in it for them, of all levels of income. And and there's and there are things, of course, that can be done at the lower levels of income. The interaction between the the tax system and the social security system. That's not something we've touched on, but the way it, it can work and tends to work is there can be very high effective marginal tax rates, so that if you as you earn a bit more, you you lose. 
uh, your social security payments and you might learn 80% of the extra income that you get from working more. Well, this, this, is, this is nuts. We're trying to incentivize people to, to work more, not, and, and the system does it the other way around. This isn't really a question that can be answered by economists. We don't have, we don't have, it's not in our toolkit to know how to convince people of, of something. That's why we have a political process. Well, that's so. I'm, that, that's me uh, handballing, handballing it to Alex, who knows more about political science than I do. Uh, one of the things that the political process hasn't done terribly successfully to date is it's it hasn't run a more rational or um, sensible debate about what the total incidence of taxation is, say, for an individual over their lifetime. So we've got a highly complex tax system. And as you move through your life, you pay more tax or less tax, depending on a whole bunch of complex circumstances. And um, the tax system does a couple of things which um, I think as a nation could could or should be sorted out. It, in a sense, it, it sometimes is taking tax off you at one point and then and then giving it back to you through a different channel. So um, all of this is quite complex. All of it needs to be sort of laid out and understood. And then we need to look at um, how fair and how transparent is the tax system um, to those who are actually engaged with it over their entire life. Uh, and this is one of the points of the debate, I think, that the political process could could consider it would take once again this idea of a, a bit of political will and a degree of vision and leadership to actually break through some of the the point scoring that might come around this but it if you look at tax reform um, through this sort of lens it gets away from that sort of low grade sensational arguments about um, winners and losers um, rich rich versus poor well Actually, when you look at how people are taxed throughout their entire lifetime, it's much more complex than that. It's not just the rich are taxed and, and they're given um, tax breaks along the way. It's actually people have circumstances which change throughout their entire life and that needs to be reflected more efficiently and more coherently and more transparently through the tax system, which is not at this point in time. And some of that, I think, too, is uh, it comes down to are you, are you trying to use the tax system to create absolute equality for everyone across at any time and across their lifetimes, or are you trying to use the tax system to provide the minimum level of services or, or an adequate level of services and provide safety nets for people so that they can live, you know, adequate, at least adequate lives? And uh, I think some of the debate sometimes is is at two ends of that that spectrum. Yeah, and as a society, we haven't worked out what we want out of the tax system where it's what its core role is, we talked about the division between responsibilities of state and states and, and the federal government. But as a society, I think we need some overarching principles about what the tax system should do. Um, when do you tax someone? When don't you tax someone? When do you use other policy or, or other levers in in our in our polity? Um, so th there's some of the things that a big tax reform agenda could consider, um, and it would be nice. I think going forward, if we had some degree of consensus around what our tax system is meant to be doing, and when does when does something interact with the tax system, and then when does something interact with other parts of our political process, is something that a mature democracy could have a reasonable debate about. Um, but you know, this is something that I think will be always a work in progress. But it would be nice if we could move more towards this sort of state in the future. One of the problems is we ask too much about taxes. So 
We wanted to raise money for governance. That's what, mostly what we've been talking about today. We wanted to some extent to equalise incomes between people. We also wanted um, to help fix environmental problems. So when we uh, had a carbon tax, the purpose of that was to reduce carbon emissions to help the, help the physical environment. And even now that, that came and went, but even today, if you buy, uh, if an employer provides you with a, if you buy an electric car, you can get that FBT free as long as it's not too expensive. So that's, again, the tax system for environmental purposes. We use the tax system for health policy. So we tax cigarettes very highly. I happen to think that's a good thing, but we do it. Uh, but motivated at least in part to discourage people from smoking. We talked before about congestion charges. So that's using the tax system to help uh, people move from point A to point B more quickly. I mean, we load a lot on the tax system, an awful lot, and we do it without giving it a huge amount of thought as to is actually is, is this actually what the tax system is meant to be there for? It's interesting you talk about some of those things that we're that we're using taxes for, and I mean they're all they're all generally laudable things. Uh, I, I think back to um, Alex. You sorry, you may not be um, may not be old enough to remember this, but I think back to the Hawke and Keating era. And one of the mantras that uh, I remember became quite popular was user pays. You would remember that, um, Jerome. Yeah. Um, we seem to have gotten away from that completely. I mean, the user now doesn't seem to pay at all. Someone else pays. Users still pay to some extent, um, although not not always. The, the, the user pays mantra then gets confused with the well, not, it's not some, the user who should pay, but the beneficiary who should pay, which is not necessarily the user, and so on. Now that's using the tax. That that's that's not really taxes. That's fee for service, which is a different concept. Yeah, I think so, it came about at a time though when um, basically the government was paying for a lot of things that the user should have paid for. And uh, I still wonder if there's some things that governments are doing now that, um, I mean, it, it, I think as you made it at the point earlier that many people want the government to use the tax system to achieve many things. And in many cases, maybe they should be putting some of their own money in themselves rather than just insisting the government do it. Well, yes, that's true. But people tend to want other people to put their money in rather than putting their own their own money. So, um, and, but the tax system... It, it's 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 a multi-headed beast. It doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. It has many jobs, and it doesn't do any of them particularly well. But fixing it is a big ask. Uh, but if we're going to fix it, and this gets to the point about one of the main points in the paper, you need to do it all at the same time. Partly because all parts of the tax system interact with each other, and partly because it is a way, we think, of unblocking the political blockages. If you, do, if you do a lot of things all at the same time, then everyone can be a winner, at least in some respect. And on top of that, Paul, you asked about the user pays principle and whether that still exists. I, I think the tax system is actually too complex to work out a sensible answer to that question. Because you, when you look at a lot of the fees and charges and compulsory levies that are that people must pay across 
locals, state and federal government. Um, it's a bit of a muddle and it's quite complex to work out whether that principle is alive and well or whether it's, um, it's, 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 it's disappeared, as you said. So one of the things that underpinning, I think, our paper too is that not only the idea that you need to do it all at once, but you need to do it all at once to break through a lot of this complexity. You actually need a reasonably clear roadmap to break through a lot of this complexity and deliver deliver a, a tax system that's fairer but also simpler. And um, that's what we argue in the paper. Maybe just going to a couple of um, often discussed um, but more specific issues. In the paper you talk about the GST uh, tax base um, and, and the broadening of it, um, which I think most of us would see efficiency benefits in. Would you see any exclusions and would the rate have to go up? The rate might have to go up, depending on how all of the other revenue raising go goes, but not necessarily. Some of the exclusions that exist because of the political deal that was done to get the GST legislation through 20-odd years ago can go away, such as fresh food in particular. I can't see any reason uh, why um, certain educational charges shouldn't be subject to, to GST. Um, it's a service just like anything else. There are some kinds of services which is to people, experts around the world have found impossible to figure out how to tax, such as bank deposits and loans and so on. They might have to be excluded. Part of the problem with the GST is that over time, more and more consumption has shifted to excludable parts of things that aren't taxed. Now, that's probably not because they're not taxed. It's just the way it's gone. So um, that's another reason to, to broaden how much money is involved would, would you get out of it depends exactly on what you do but related to my point that everything is uh, connected to everything else all of the GST revenue goes to the states through the horizontal fiscal equalization process so if, the, if, the, if the GST is broadened and perhaps the rate increased the states are going to get on the whole going to get more money not a bad thing in itself but the method by which it's allocated between them then would need to be uh, reformed. And that interacts with direct Commonwealth payments to the states for, for various programs that we talked about before. Maybe just uh, the last point. This is one that I um, often thought about. So the question of um, states selling uh, assets, and particularly the uh, resource-rich states, who uh, essentially are selling their assets when they dig iron out of the ground or coal out of the ground or other minerals out of the ground. They recover the value of that either through royalties or uh, sometimes through other, other means. And I think currently they that's included within um, the horizontal fiscal equalisation calculations. But when uh, New South Wales sold its toll roads, um, that's not. So why, why should royalties and or effectively the sale of um, why, why shouldn't that be treated as an asset as distinct from an ongoing revenue source? Well, the argument that the Commonwealth Grants Commission, which administers uh, these processes, says is, is that it's, it's a capacity it, it's a capacity issue of the states. 
And so if you have a lot of minerals in the ground, you have more capacity to raise money than if, than if you don't. Um, whereas the selling of a of, of an asset like like a coal loader is a policy decision. And that doesn't count in the horizontal fiscal equalization calculation. So stuff that's um, you know money from heaven, which is whether you have valuable rocks underneath underneath you, that counts. And stuff you decide as a matter of policy to do doesn't count. Of course that's an arbitrary decision itself, but that's the way the mechanism works. I think it it, it highlights um, the complexity of any any taxation system trying to work out what's what's in what's out. Um, well, that's been a, a terrific conversation um, uh, on on the issue. I mean the the articles on uh, the ACL Island website uh, for anyone who wants to read a bit more about it. So thank you to both of you for joining us today, and and thank you to all the listeners. Tune in next time for another insider take on what's happening on the headlines. Or in the meantime, visit aceallen.com.au for more in-depth articles and insight.